and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Taylor Scollin. A lot of the big trends in the economy right now are converging in the auto sector and the negotiations over new contracts for auto workers at the big three car makers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, now known as Stellantis. You've got this conflict between workers and employers over wages and some evidence that workers may finally have more leverage than they've had in a long time. You've got the clean energy transition with the rise of EVs and what that means for the auto industry and the people who work in it. And you've got the push to manufacture more things onshore again and preserve an industry that's been an engine for middle class jobs for decades. And all these issues are on the table in this round of bargaining between Unifor in Canada and the United Auto Workers in the States and the big three car makers. And on today's show, Jim Stanford joins us to explain what's happening here and how all these issues are playing a role in these negotiations. Jim is the economist and director of the Center for Future Work, and he spent 20 years as economist and director of policy for the union formerly known as the Canadian Auto Workers and now known as Unifor, so he knows a thing or two about what goes into these negotiations. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. My pleasure, Taylor. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with uh, a topic that's been in the news a lot lately, which is the strikes at the big three auto manufacturers. And starting with Canada, what would you say are the main issues that were at play in the negotiations over the new contract? Sure, because uh, we had no strikes in Canada. It's only on the U.S. side that there's been a work stoppage. So uh, in Canada, the Auto Workers Union, uh, Unifor, reached uh, one kind of pattern agreement, they call it, with Ford a couple of weeks ago. And now they're negotiating with General Motors, and then they'll negotiate with the third company, uh, Stellantis, which is the new kind of corporate name for the company that includes Chrysler, what we used to call Chrysler uh, in North America. Um, I'd say the, the top issues were, first of all, wages in any union bargaining in any industry anywhere in Canada right now. Uh, wages and trying to keep up with the cost of living is obviously front and center. We've seen workers' paychecks fail to keep up with surging inflation over the last couple of years. And so workers naturally are trying to protect themselves. Uh, we've also seen uh, from Unifor a big emphasis on uh, pension improvements, uh, as well as um, uh, protecting workers in the course of the transition of the auto industry towards the electric vehicle technology, which is really accelerating by leaps and bounds. Uh, so they've negotiated some interesting provisions to try and uh, smooth that transition, if you like, and make sure that workers aren't you know, left out as that transition uh, occurs. Uh, so those were the main issues, and they were able to get uh, what I consider to be an excellent uh, agreement with Ford, uh, and then it was ratified by the uniform members at Ford, not by an overwhelming number. This is kind of yeah. interesting. It got 54% ratification, even though the, the wage gains, probably 25% over three years. And the other improvements were very impressive. But uh, obviously, workers are pissed off out there, Taylor, and with good reason. And uh, so sometimes it comes out in funny ways. So, But it was ratified, so there's no work stoppage. And now they're on to the next two companies. Why don't we stick on that point about the how close the vote mm. was on the ratification? Sure. I mean, what do you think were the the main 
reasons for that. I mean, it, it seems like pretty sizable wage gains um, and progress on these other issues. What were the the main objections, I guess, that some of the members still had? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of hard to pin that down. And this is a, pr- uh, a phenomenon that we've seen not just in these auto negotiations, but in other uh, collective bargaining across Canada over the last year. We've seen other agreements that look pretty good voted down by the members. Uh, that happened to Unifor with the metro supermarkets in the uh, Ontario region. It happened with the dock workers uh, out in BC, and we've seen other uh, other collective agreements uh, voted down. Construction workers in Ontario last mm. year voted down some of the initial agreements that they got. Um, so um, I think that first of all, there is uh, clearly a um, an anger and a, a sort of a, a demand uh, among workers coming out of the pandemic that they be respected and recognized for what they do, and uh, that their living standards be protected. And uh, given what's happened, I, I absolutely uh, endorse that anger. Uh, it's legitimate. Um, so, you know, sometimes uh, I, I, I used to work for the union as an economist and uh, ratification meetings are always, always interesting. You know, it's in a way, it's a chance to hold the union accountable to its members, uh, for the members to, you know, in a way, um, express any frustrations that they have, whether it's to do with that collective agreement or not. Uh, so they're always, a, I think, a very good, robust and sometimes rough and tumble form of internal democracy for a union. Hmm. And uh, so the fact that the vote was close uh, is a, a sign that workers' expectations are high and that they want their union to do the best that the that the union can to protect them. Uh, now, in the judgment of, you know, economists and analysts who've looked at this agreement, it is an amazing agreement with some really strong gains. So in that regard, I think the union has done that. But um, uh, there's obviously a whole process of uh, internal discussion and debate and consultation to make sure that the members agree with that assessment. And uh, we'll see again how the ratification votes go with the next two companies. Okay, interesting. Uh, why don't we talk about the EV electric vehicle transition piece a little bit? Because, you know, as you mentioned, this was uh, a big part of these negotiations and a big part of the dispute that's still going on in the U.S., um, why is that? What are the implications of the EV transition for workers in the industry? Well, we have seen the uh, electric vehicles obviously taking the automotive market by storm. Uh, you know, initially it was kind of a, you know, a, a very sort of pioneering thing. You know, you'd see somebody in a Tesla. It was kind of an unusual sight and yeah. they cost a fortune at the time. Well, as the technology has improved uh, including how long you can drive them without charging them and the different charging systems. As the cost of manufacturing EVs and their batteries, the battery is the most uh, expensive part of, a, of an EV, has come down thanks to experience with production and economies of scale producing at larger volumes. Uh, now EVs uh, are, are growing very rapidly. And in some parts of the world, uh, they've pretty well taken over. In Norway, for example, today they sell virtually no internal combustion cars. And we will be at that point in North America within a decade. There's no doubt about it. So uh, all of the automakers in the world have recognized this, and they've all moved very quickly to try and shift their whole production lineup over to electric vehicles. So, I mean, what an industrial undertaking. This is just uh, astounding to think you can Mm -hmm. transform an entire industry that quickly, but it is happening. Now, what does it mean for the people who work in the auto industry? A uh, big distinction here, uh, Taylor, between the auto assembly plants that put all the parts together in a vehicle and then the auto supply industry, the parts producers that mm. make the various components that get assembled in that final vehicle. 
In the assembly operation, I don't think the change is going to be that dramatic. They're still going to use an assembly line. They still use a, a lot of labor to put all the pieces together in a vehicle. And obviously, you're now installing batteries and uh, electric systems rather than powertrains and transmissions and engines. But most of the work is still going to be there. There may be a little bit less uh, work in the final assembly of an electric vehicle, but not, not a whole uh, transformative change. And at any rate, auto assembly has been transformed anyways over the last couple of decades with the use of robots and uh, other technologies. Every time they produce a new model in an auto assembly plant, there's typically 100 or 200 jobs that disappear because of the improvements in productivity. So uh, that's not an earth-shattering development. In the supply chain, however, it's going to be a bigger change for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is less work involved in producing a big battery and associated uh, power systems than producing an engine and pistons and crankshafts and transmissions and connector rods and everything else that goes into an internal combustion engine. So uh, there's a more significant shift in the amount of labor that will be required. Secondly, the work will occur probably in different workplaces. You know, the assembly plants will be the same plant with the same workers and the same union and the same company. They're now assembling an electric vehicle rather than a conventional one. In the parts industry, you're probably going to be using different companies in different workplaces for the production of batteries and other components. And so this poses a bigger transition challenge. And it is one that Unifor in Canada tried to address in its negotiations with Ford. Sometimes some of the work, including assembling uh, components or battery pack systems, probably not making the batteries themselves, but preparing them for installation in the car, uh, some of that will occur within conventional factories of Ford, GM, and, and Stellantis. So in that mm. case, the union can look out for its members and ensure that the people doing that work are covered by the union benefits. In other cases, the, including in most cases, the batteries themselves, it will be a separate company or perhaps a joint venture manufacturing those things in a separate location. Um, so, for example, Volkswagen is creating a huge new battery factory near London. Stellantis is going to create a huge new battery factory, a joint venture uh, near Windsor. And so these are probably going to be staffed by largely new workers and the, the union will go to those facilities and say, you know what, you deserve to have a, a union just like the people who used to make engines had a union. Uh, in some cases, they'll be negotiating with the companies themselves to ensure the companies don't try to block uh, the unionization. Uh, then there's a the whole issue of skills and training. It will involve different skills to produce uh, a, a modern uh, vehicle battery rather than uh, powertrains. So there's going to have to be retraining involved and probably lots of hiring and mobility. So it's going to be a complex process over the next decade. And uh, what the union has done with this contract is try to say this should be negotiated and the workers should be protected. Either they get a, a, a very good shot at one of the new jobs with training uh, to support it, or they get uh, retirement packages and other um, protections in the event that their, uh, that their work will end in the course of this transition. Are there going to be fewer of these jobs in the you know automotive supply chain once everyone's driving an EV? Yes, there will be. There will be uh, possibly, as I said, a, a bit fewer jobs in assembly. Not a big change there, but yeah. it will be a bigger reduction in total labor demand in the auto supply sector. Um, and uh, again, part of the challenge here for Canada is going to be to make sure we keep a share, a healthy share, and maybe even a bigger share 
of that industry. One of the ways to, you know, mitigate against big job losses is to make sure that, okay, there's less work involved in producing batteries than engines, but let's make sure we got a really strong battery industry. And both the government and the auto industry and the union have been very active in making sure that Canada nails down some of the big initial investments. Uh, so we've seen some big battery plants and then uh, the uh, critical minerals processing and manufacturing that goes into making batteries. Uh, so Canada's got a good head start in, in that regard, in part because we had a strong auto industry to start with and we're, we're all ahead of the curve in trying to reorient it. And in part because of our natural resources, you know, we've got lithium and many of the other uh, critical and rare earth minerals that go into battery production. So it sort of makes sense uh, if, if the if the rocks are here, why don't we refine them and manufacture them here? And I think that's exactly where the industry is heading. From the perspective of organized labor, um, these new parts of the supply chain, battery manufacturing, you know, critical mineral processing, these sorts of things, uh, I assume that those are starting out n not unionized. Is it going to be a challenge, you think, to organize those workplaces in the way that the auto assembly plants have been organized? Or is the vision, I suppose, to you know, expand union coverage across the EV supply chain as well? Well, most of those plants have not been built yet. So the question of uh, whether they're unionized or not is True. at this point uh, <laughs> still in the future. Uh, you know, there, there are some initial investments being made, but, you know, it will be some years before, you know, that big new Volkswagen operation, for example, is, uh, is uh, underway. Uh, so the discussions are happening. The union is looking at what's happening and say, look, these workers deserve a contract and fair wages and a pension and health and safety protection, just like traditional auto parts workers did. Uh, they're also talking to the uh, companies where they have some sway. So that includes the big auto assemblers for GM and Stellantis uh, and other auto parts makers that already have a union. Uh, Magna, for example, or March and Rhea, companies mm -hmm. where some of the plants in Canada are already unionized and saying, you know, the union is saying, look, we got to preserve our relationship here. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it could come down to the union, you know, handing out pamphlets and trying to get union membership cards signed at those plants. But uh, my guess is that the uh, companies involved will uh, will enter a negotiation with the union ahead of time and uh, try to arrange some kind of uh, um, uh, transition and recognition process that uh, will uh, allow those workers to have a, a union. Unifor um, put that demand on the table in its bargaining with Ford and then now with the other companies and won a commitment from Ford that they would demand neutrality in union drives from any of their suppliers. So a company that makes batteries say or some other ev component for ford is going to have to stay out of the stay out of the question if there's a union organizing campaign underway the management of those companies cannot go out as they often do and tell the workers don't join the union it will threaten your jobs in the future we might close the plant hmm. etc etc so that's a commitment to neutrality on the part of suppliers i think will be important and that will help to facilitate unifor's efforts to make sure the EV workforce of the future is uh, is unionized just as the existing traditional auto parts sector is. I, I know it's still early, very early days in this, and you know, as you say, a lot of these plants haven't been built yet. But is there any early evidence or forecasts, I guess, around what the bottom line of this transition will mean for workers? Like, are these going to be well-paying middle-class jobs as you know, auto manufacturing jobs have traditionally been, 
or is this going to be sort of a lower wage environment? There's, there's no guarantee, Taylor, uh, about the quality of those jobs in the future unless we put in place the protections to make sure that they are. And that includes the possibility of unionization. Uh, so um, in the U.S., it's interesting to note, um, the U.S. federal government under Joe Biden has put some huge subsidies on the table to support new investments in electric vehicles and batteries and other components. And even though America is generally a very hostile place for unions, um, you know, not because of Joe Biden, he's actually very sympathetic to unions, but because of the labor laws that have been implemented there over the last decades, um, the, uh, the U.S. government has tried to use conditionality on those grants and subsidies to the electric vehicle makers and battery makers to say, look, you're going to get a big swack of public money to help you build the business case for these things. You have to meet certain requirements uh, around fair treatment of the workers, including fair, uh, prevailing wage, and in some cases, uh, encouraging unionization. Now, the U.S. hasn't required unionization as a condition of those grants, but they've tried to make it a bit easier for unions to get involved. That will help. But again, there's no guarantee. Uh, in the U.S., uh, companies have been pretty ruthless at trying to keep unions out and trying to drive down wages, including by shifting uh, their, uh, uh, their manufacturing facilities to places like Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee that have very anti-union laws. Unions are virtually non-existent in those states. And we've already seen some of the battery makers do exactly that following the same recipe. So I guess, uh, Taylor, the lesson is just because you're a capitalist producing a environmentally sensitive product like an EV battery, you're still probably as greedy as any other capitalist and you're going to try and uh, uh, keep wages as low as possible. Uh, in Canada, it will be a different, uh, a different approach because we have a different tradition of labor law and we have a union movement that is more uh, critical mass, I think, than is the case in the U.S., um, but I do think we're still going to see um, efforts by governments to tie fair treatment of the workers to the government support that is given to these industries as they set up. And I think that's reasonable. And then you're going to see a union movement that is stronger and better connected using every lever that it can pull uh, to try and make sure that those workers in the EV system in the future um, are treated well. Uh, but, you know, there's no guarantee. There's nothing inherent about making cars that explains why it's been traditionally a source of good, well-paying, working-class jobs. Uh, that happened because of deliberate choices that were made along the way, including thanks to the unions that were strong in that industry. And I, I think that historical lesson will have to be reviewed and reactivated in order to ensure that jobs in the EV industry in the future are also good, well-paying, working-class jobs. So why don't we talk about the competition between the unionized automakers, the big three, with non-union automakers like Tesla. You know, there's some new companies, China, that might start selling into the North American market at some point. You know, there's the factories in places that you mentioned, like Alabama, which are, are non-union. Do the unions make it harder for the likes of GM and Ford and Stellantis to compete with those automakers? I don't think the labor cost issue is really relevant in the EV competition so far at all. Uh, Tesla, hmm. of course, was an early mover and came out with an appealing product and charged a fortune for it and made a, 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 a significant profit in the early days. 
Um, now, Elon Musk, you know, among his many uh, objectionable personality traits, one of them is he's fiercely, fiercely, fiercely anti-union and has done everything he can to prevent unionization of, uh, of his plants, um, and some of which are illegal. Uh, Tesla has been charged with unfair labor practices in, in all kinds of ways. A big irony here, the initial factory that was making the Teslas in California used to be a General Motors factory, and it used mm, to be unionized. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he came in and uh, purchased it and restructured it and and then has been running it as a, as a non-union operation. So that's a funny historical irony. Uh, but, of course, he's grown well beyond that one plant now to include all kinds of facilities, most, most of which are, uh, are non-union. Uh, the labor costs, to think about, you know, $100,000 Tesla, what are the actual labor costs in that vehicle? Puny. Two, three percent, maybe. Most of really? the cost is from the technology, the marketing, the engineering, and then a, just a gigantic profit margin that Tesla's been collecting. Uh, so Tesla w- could have done what it did and still had a union and paid union wages, no doubt about it. But uh, Elon Musk is the sort of person who doesn't want anything standing in the way of his own personal uh, decision-making power. And that's one of the things that's going to bring him down in the long run. We've seen it with Twitter, of course, and we're going to see it with Tesla with uh, all kinds of investor dissatisfaction about the way he's running the company. Now Tesla's early mover advantage is dissipating because everyone and their dog is getting into the EV business and many of them are doing it very successfully. And the price of EVs is coming down very rapidly. Uh, yet the role of labor costs in overall pricing and, and market competition is still trivial. Uh, well under 5% of the total cost of producing a, a vehicle now, uh, even lower for electric vehicles, is the direct labor costs of the people who work for the automaker. Wow. So um, it will have no impact. What The key things are going to be quality, engineering, consumer appeal, and the ability of the companies to develop a new supply chain that's uh, reliable and efficient. That's what's going to determine who succeeds and who doesn't, not whether they have a union or not. You know, and we've seen lots of uh, other companies now come to the market, most of which are, are unionized. You see the new pole stars around a lot uh, now, kind of crowding out some of the Teslas, a very attractive car uh, made by Volvo and uh, unionized operations, no doubt about it. So uh, in the end, uh, it's not going to matter to the competition. There will be, I think, some other, other shifts. Uh, it is in a way... Because of the nature of the technology, it is easier for a new company to come in to produce electric vehicles than would have been the case with a traditional in- internal combustion uh, vehicle. Mm. The engineering requirements and manufacturing challenges and so on, I think, are uh, more solvable. So we are going to see more new names, not just new brands from existing companies. That's what Polestar is, but actual new companies setting up to do these. Some of them are going to succeed. Most of them are not. Uh, We're also going to see some changes in international trade because of it. Uh, China uh, has become the world's largest exporter of vehicles, which is just a stunning change, replacing Japan and Germany. Uh, So uh, what does that mean? You know, in China, of course, it's not that the plants are are union or non-union. They are all unionized in China, but it is within a system that uh, has kept wages low. So uh, for all of those reasons, um, I think there's going to be some important competitive shifts but I do think that the the North American, the three major North American producers, backed by the U.S. and Canadian and Mexican governments, which have been very active supporting their transition, I think they will remain viable and profitable uh, competitors in this new chapter of the automotive industry. Okay, um, and I, I do want to touch on, you know, one last thing specifically with North American 
automakers, which is the differences between the U.S. and Canadian environments. Why was Unifor able to get an agreement and the UAW is still on strike? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question, uh, Taylor. There's such a history there. Um, in the olden days, they, workers on both sides of the border were actually in the same union. It was the UAW, the United Auto Workers, that first organized uh, unions in Canadian auto factories uh, back in the early post-war years, or actually in the 1930s when it started. Uh, then uh, over time, especially through the 1970s and 80s, there were different economic situations, different political conditions, different philosophies between the Canadian branch of the UAW and the American branch or the American leadership. And then in 1985, the Canadian auto workers actually split away and formed their own union, the Canadian auto workers. And Bob White, the guy who used to swear up a storm in his negotiations, uh, uh, famously captured in, the, in movies and so on, very charismatic leader, uh, formed the uh, Canadian auto workers union. Uh, which now is Uniforce. In, 20, in 2013, uh, the CAW merged with another Canadian union and formed Unifor. Um, so there's a very different history. They're very different unions. Uh, the Canadian union, uh, you know, I think has been more successful over the years in protecting wages and pensions and other benefits, despite the big challenges that the auto companies have faced, uh, especially global financial crisis, 2008-2009, GM and Chrysler went through bankruptcy protection. Ford almost did. And so uh, that was just a, an existential crisis for the industry. And workers on both sides of the border made big sacrifices. But I think the, the Canadian Union has, done, has, has been more successful in preserving uh, uh, real wages and other benefits. Uh, it's also been more successful at diversifying. So in the uh, Canadian side, the auto industry itself uh, accounts for about 15% of Unifor's total membership, whereas in the U.S. side, it's still 40%. So the, mm. that, in a way, gives the union a better um, position, you know, kind of more staying power, if you like, to deal with the bargaining on the Canadian side. And then, you know, I think, to be frank, the, the Unifor and the companies have had, on the, on, for the most part, a successful relationship over the years in making deals. The companies aren't thrilled about what they pay out in wages and benefits, but they do it. And then the union uh, has been a reliable um, uh, a reliable partner in an industry that has been successful despite all the challenges. Uh, different story in the U.S. There was more, I think, uh, acceptance of um, the idea that, well, if we cut our wages, maybe our jobs will be safe. That hasn't really panned out. The internal challenges at the UAW, many of the union leaders turned out to be corrupt, and some of them are actually in jail now, believe it or not. And a whole new slate of leaders came in last year in the UAW, and they are kind of intent on proving their mettle. I think that has been an important reason why the UAW is on strike, and the Canadians uh, were not. Um, at mm. the end of the day, we're, you know unions go on strike when they need to. Uh, on the other hand, if you can win something without going on strike, definitely better because the members don't lose wages and the, you know, the threats and insecurity that come with a work stoppage. So uh, I think Unifor, uh, in a way, threaded the needle as far as being able to win gains that I think are comparable to what the UAW is demanding. The difference is the Canadians have it and got it without a strike. Uh, so we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I did want to dig a little bit deeper into the, uh, I guess, the goals, two goals of the uh, 
environmental transition, reducing carbon emissions by getting more EVs in the road, building battery plants, et cetera, and the interests of labor. Um, are those intention at all? Because, you know, I can see someone saying, well, if we really want to ramp up EV production or battery production or whatever, we really just need to, you know, build as quickly as possible and let's not worry so much about making sure that these are union jobs or that the pensions are in place and so on and so forth. Um, is that a real tension or can these two things be done simultaneously? Oh, that's a really good question, Taylor. And uh, again, the, there's been years of evolution of thinking within the labor movement on that very point. You know, I think in, uh, say, uh, 15, 15 or 20 years ago, when we were first waking up to the threat of climate change and understanding how our economy had to change, including traditional pillars of our economy in Canada, manufacturing and resources and so on, uh, I think there was a natural... Um, caution and and perhaps fear among many workers and many unions about what does this mean for our future, and uh, I'd say and you know initially some of the unions resisted those changes, saying uh, you know I don't care enough about the environment to put my job at risk. Uh, I think that attitude by and large has disappeared, uh, in part because people are more aware of how bad the threat of climate change is and understand that we have to address it. Uh, secondly, they've uh, understood that those industries are going to change. Uh, it's not a question of deciding whether we're going to get off fossil fuels or not. We are getting off fossil fuels. And all the new technology around renewable energy and then renewable energy systems like electric vehicles that are, you know, in the end going to be powered by solar and wind and geothermal and other sustainable sources of electricity. Um, the, the technological breakthroughs, the fact that renewable energy is clearly more uh, affordable and more reliable on a full cycle basis than traditional fossil fuel industries, this is going to happen. And there are not many, uh, you know, thoughtful trade unionists who are going to stick their heads in the sand and say, I don't want it to happen, so I'm going to resist it. And you see this in the approach that Unifor has taken to the electric vehicle transition. They aren't saying, no, we don't want this to happen. I think in part because they realize there's no point to saying that. It is going to happen. So, you know, let's get in there and think about how it's going to happen and make sure the costs and benefits of that transition are fairly shared. And to your point, make sure that the jobs in this sustainable industry in the future are good jobs. And that, that won't happen unless we put in place the labor standards and the uh, pension requirements and the union representation and everything else to make sure those jobs in the future uh, are indeed good jobs. And you see, I think, a similar evolution in the thinking um, in organized labor around other uh, sections of the economy that are going to be affected by the shift to a low-carbon economy. The most intense, of course, the pointy end of this debate is going to be in the energy industry itself, fossil fuel industries, and some of them are unionized. It's relatively low union density in the oil and gas sector, but some of the facilities are, including with Unifor. And uh, there could be a temptation to say, you know, we're going to just put on our blinkers and pretend climate change isn't happening and keep producing oil and gas till the cows come home. That's kind of the view that Daniel Smith in Alberta and other uh, and some oil and gas um, uh, leaders have been saying. Um, but again, to the credit, I think, of the union and, and others there, you know, there's, I think, an, a recognition among anyone who reads the newspaper that uh, the oil and gas industry is going to disappear. We don't know exactly when, but it is going to disappear. And um, 
instead of pretending that we can stop that, we should plan for it and make sure that the process of that transition is as fair and balanced as possible. Okay. Uh, one last question here. I just want to get sort of a broader view of the labor market and the prospects for workers right now generally. You know, given the low levels of unemployment, historic lows, um, and the fact that we're just starting to see wage gains outpace inflation, uh, do you think that that trend is going to persist? Or is this a, a blip and we'll soon go back to where we were not that long ago, which was wages, you know, either falling behind inflation or relatively stagnant. Yeah, it's it's been a rocking and rolling time uh, in the labor market since the pandemic hit. Uh, I, I've never seen anything like it, and I doubt that I ever will again. I hope I don't again. Yeah. Uh, first, you had this incredible drop off in, in employment when the pandemic first hit. Three million jobs in Canada disappeared within six weeks. Uh, unbelievable. And could have been the beginning of a depression, no doubt about it. Uh, luckily, the government stepped in with some very powerful supports, including the CERB and all the emergency benefits, and the Bank of Canada uh, cut interest rates to, to near zero. And uh, we were able to also implement masks and vaccines and everything quickly to allow the economy to reopen. Then when it reopened, it reopened with a bang, and we had a very quick rebound, not a complete rebound. We still haven't got the economy back to where it would have been without the pandemic, and this is important to keep in mind. Uh, it's not that we're overheated in the sense that we're still trying to do too much. We, we actually haven't repaired the damage yet fully from the pandemic. Uh, and so you saw uh, the unemployment rate fall to, you know, not zero. It's not full employment, but uh, to around 5%, which is certainly lower than it has been in uh, Canada's uh, recent history. And that gave workers some uh, some bargaining power. Also, I think uh, there was an important shift in mindset coming out of the pandemic. You know, workers... In many industries that were taken for granted, paid minimum wage, given no guarantees like grocery store clerks and uh, fast food workers and delivery drivers and carers and cleaners, they had to do their jobs in the pandemic when society depended on them, yet their lives literally were at risk uh, for a while to do their jobs. And I, I think people came out of the pandemic with a bit more chutzpah, if I can say that, you know, uh, hmm. determination to have their work respected and valued. And I think that's a bit of uh, what's behind the upsurge that we've seen in uh, union organizing drives and collective bargaining and just general, um, a generally higher level of expectations that workers have. So um, the inflation that was spurred when the, when the global economy reopened was not caused by workers, that's clear. Wages lagged behind inflation in Canada for the first uh, year and a half of that. Then earlier this year, as inflation has slowed down and wage gains have picked up, we are now in a situation where wages are growing faster than prices um, for now anyways. And that has to happen. If we're going to rebuild the decline in real wages that workers experienced uh, immediately after the pandemic, then for some time, for the next couple of years at least, we're going to have to see wage growth that outpaces inflation. The Bank of Canada does not like that idea. They say that's going to lock in an inflation mindset and uh, they're trying to stop it. So they're uh, deliberately trying to increase unemployment and uh, cool off wage increases. 
but that would just lock in the decline in living standards that workers have experienced. And, and that has been the, the spur for much of that anger that we talked about uh, earlier in this conversation. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be a, an interesting and, in a way, conflictual time over the next year or two. Workers have uh, a, a legitimate desire to repair the damage to their living standards that they've experienced. We saw a huge run-up in corporate profits in the early uh, stages of this inflation. In fact, in 2022, profits were higher as a share of GDP than they've ever been in Canadian history despite the disruption and desperation that Canadians were feeling. So those profits are going to have to come back down, and that is going to help to pay for the recovery, the repair of real wages that uh, uh, were damaged by the early inflation. That's the way to close the circle on this. We can repair real wages and bring inflation down, but only if uh, the corporate sector, uh, one way or the other, by hook or by crook, takes less in the overall economic pie. And unions are one way to do that. When unions go out and say, look, we got to increase real wages uh, to fix the damage that's been done and your profits are going to suffer as a result, the employers won't be happy. But in fact, it's a constructive thing to help to repair the imbalances created by the pandemic and that initial surge in inflation. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to leave it for now. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. My pleasure, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow the show. I would really appreciate it. Thank you to Jim for joining us and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.